So if you remember last time I was supposed to preach, I had just started basketball, and uh, my voice wasn't prepared for the beating it was going to take. So we had to call an audible, and I wasn't able to preach that time. And, uh, well, this past week, we had a week off of basketball. Then we started again on Wednesday, and I almost did it again because my voice wasn't prepared for that again. So it got to be Thursday, and I was getting a little hoarse, and I was like, okay, I got to take it easy because if I don't, that's a, I can't do that to Rex again on the last second. Um, I may still be a little hoarse, uh, but this is much better than it was uh, back in November when I was supposed to preach. Uh, but go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, uh, right at the beginning. If you need a Bible, uh, if you, you put your hand up, we'd have somebody that'd be happy uh, to bring you in. But Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning. I, as you're turning there, I just want you uh, to take a moment and just think about some of your favorite stories. Maybe stories you were told as a child. Uh, stories uh, you may have read in a book uh, or, or watched in a movie. Uh, but, but think of some of your favorite stories. I know my personal favorite uh, is The Lord of the Rings. And those of you who know me probably know that. Uh, the books and the movies. Um, but, I, but I love the story of, of Sam and Frodo taking the one ring to rule them all to the land of Mordor to be destroyed in the, in the fires of Mount Doom. Like any good story, it's filled with, with tension and conflict, rising action, falling action, and then hope, and then finally at the end, there's resolution to the story. And in the story, I love, I love the battles that take place between good and evil. I love the, the, the contrast of darkness and light. I love the, the grand and weighty themes in it. And then I love how in the end, good triumphs over evil. And I don't know what your favorite story is, uh, but we all love a good story, don't we? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that we are currently, right now, in this very moment, living in the greatest story ever told. A story so great, it would, it would make the, the Lord of the Rings or whatever your favorite story is look like child's play. And this story begins in Genesis 1 and 2 as we're introduced to the main characters into the setting of the story. That the main characters being God and humanity. And Genesis 1, 1 begins with God first. He's the first character we're introduced to in the story. Genesis 1, 1, you probably know it or have heard it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? God who has existed from before the foundation of the world. God who speaks all of creation into existence by his word. And who creates all things to display his glory. So we're introduced to God first. And a little later on, we're introduced to humanity. The, the crown jewel of creation is after everything else, he, he gets to the end and then creates humanity as kind of the cherry on top. Made in his own image to be little, little statues that reflect his glory to one another and, and back to him. And so we see the characters, God and humanity. But this great drama needs a setting. It needs a stage on which it can unfold. And so we see in chapter 1 especially God laying out the setting, creating the world. And it goes day by day. Day 1, he creates this. Day 2, creates this. And it goes on and on. 
Until finally the, the, the stage is set, the characters are there. And chapters 1 and 2 finish, and he says it's all very good. And then this brings us to Genesis 3. And if you're familiar with the Bible, we all know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. If Genesis 1 and 2 is the introduction to the story, when we're introduced to the main characters in the setting, Genesis 3 is the inciting moment in the story, that that point of conflict where the antagonist enters in, and, that, and then the, the tension and the conflict begins. And again, we all know what happens. The antagonist, Satan, in the form of a serpent, enters the garden and he, he seduces the humans into rebelling against their God and their creator by getting them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's in that moment that they do that that the conflict begins. Because everything that was pronounced by God to be very good at the end of chapter 2 now has now been broken and tainted by their sin and their rebellion. And so in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13, it describes that whole account. It describes the, the serpent seducing them. It describes Adam and Eve uh, taking the fruit and eating it. And that's where the conflict begins. And then finally this brings us to Genesis 3, 16 through 19. Now, God has already pronounced a curse over the serpent in verse 14. If you, if you just look at that, verse 14 pronounces a curse over them. In verse 16 now, he turns his attention to Adam and Eve, and he begins to pronounce a curse over them. Right, so follow along with me as I read verses 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there's so much that could be said about the, the specific details of this curse God pronounces over them. But there are really two main points about the curse that I want to, to make today. And the first thing is this, is, is first, all of creation has fallen under this curse because of Adam and Eve's sin. Notice in verse 17, when he, he tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Right, cursed is the ground because of you. I think when he's saying this to Adam, I think God's using a figure of speech in which he uses a part of something to refer to the whole. So that when he says ground, he's, he's meaning the earth, or, or all of creation. And I think that because in Romans 8, uh, 20 and 21, it, it says that all of creation was subjected to futility 
and bondage to corruption. All right, so all of creation was subjected to futility. So these verses in Romans 8 tell us that the curse God pronounced after the fall did not just affect Adam and Eve. It wasn't just humanity, then the rest of creation is unaffected. Right, but it tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation was affected by this curse, that everything was subjected to futility. And I think when God says in Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground, I think that's him subjecting all of creation to the effects of the curse. Subjecting everything to futility, to bondage, to corruption. All right, so that's the first thing I want you to see about the curse. That is, it's not just us humans that have been affected, but it's all of creation. It's everything. The whole created order. And the second thing I want you to see is how the curse has affected all of creation. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything and tells us it's all very good. But where there, where there used to be peace and order and harmony and wholeness in God's created order, the curse has now introduced disorder and disharmony and brokenness. And this brokenness and this disorder and this disharmony has has crept into every nook and cranny of creation so that there is not one aspect of creation that has not been touched by the fall and by the curse. And this curse finds its culmination, as verse 19 says, in death. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's where the curse finds its, its culmination, its high point. Even before Adam had eaten of the tree, earlier in Genesis 2, God told him, Today you eat of it, you shall surely die. And now that he has eaten of it, that's exactly what God says will happen. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now Adam and Eve, under this curse, will now live their lives in this state of of misery. Living in a world full of thorns and thistles, as it says in verse 18. A world in which everything has fallen under this curse. In lives in which will ultimately end in the most terrifying thing of all, death itself. And all of this happens because they refuse to walk in obedience to God. They refuse to be satisfied in Him. And so these are the natural consequences for their rebellion. And they must now live with them. So every part of creation has been subjected to futility or to the effects of the curse. So that all of creation is now filled with thorns and thistles. And this curse finds its end in death. And I want you to see today that we're still living in this story. That this story that began in Genesis 1 and 2, the story where the, the antagonist enters in Genesis 3 and begins this great conflict, that it's not 
over. It's the, the, the world that that happened in in Genesis 3 that God created, that the world that Satan entered and seduced Adam and Eve, the world that God cursed in Genesis 3, that's the same world we're sitting in right now. The same world we wake up in every single day. I remember taking a class in college over, just, it was just an overview of the whole Bible. And at, at some point in the class, it just kind of dawned on me near the end. Like, this is, uh, this is a, a story and we're, like, we're still in it. We, we, so we think of, like, the Bible times back then. That happened to them and, you know, the Bible times. And it dawned on me that the Bible time, like, we're still in the Bible times. The Bible times aren't over. The story isn't finished. We're still in it. And I think we all know this. As we, as we sit here in this cursed, fallen creation, we know this. Pain and childbearing. Marital strife. Stress and difficult work situations. Sickness, disease, medical issues, mysterious aches and pains that you feel but you don't even know what they are. Natural disasters, worry, anxiety plaguing us every day. Violence, hatred, division amongst people, etc. These things and so so many more. They're, they're the norm in this life. It's the it's the everyday, and we all we all know it. And I don't know how you personally are feeling the weight of the curse in your life lately, but I'm sure if I were to ask every one of you, you could you could tell me how you the last few weeks or a month have felt the weight of the curse that we're living under. Now, all these things and so many more harass us every day. They afflict us for the, the duration of our lives. And, and then we come to the end of our lives and it brings us to the most terrifying aspect of the curse, death itself. Right, for we too are from the dust and to the dust we too shall return. For we too, like Adam, have taken and eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We too have participated in this great rebellion, this great uprising against the sovereign Lord of the universe. And by our rebellion, we have brought ourselves under this curse. For sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. We have all been subjected to the curse. We are all living under it in this world right now as we speak. And so we find ourselves to be characters in the story. Just like Adam and Eve. Living in the same setting, the same conflict that began in Genesis 3 is still happening today living under the same curse with the same end of death. But like any good story, this story doesn't end here. Look at verse 15 with me in Genesis 3, if you're still there. Follow along with me, if you will. 
Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is kind of a peculiar verse, is it not? All this talk of, of enmity or strife and bruising or striking and the head and heel. Like, what's awesome? I mean, what, what's going on here? What, what is this in, in the middle of, the, of this curse? Well, let's look at it a little bit more closely. Let's, who's speaking here, first of all? And we know that God is. This is the, the Lord God is speaking here, okay? And, and to whom is he speaking? Well, if we go back to verse 14, we find that he's actually speaking to the serpent here. Right, speaking to, to, to Satan. And what does God tell him, first of all? He says that he will put enmity or hatred or strife or hostility between Satan and the woman or Eve. Now, he's not merely talking about the, the general hatred that women have for snakes, although that might be kind of a symptom of the greater problem. But what he's talking about is, is the great conflict that exists between Satan and mankind, the great conflict that began in the garden, and the conflict that was carried on from generation to generation until we're here today. So he's, he's saying that there, there will be this, this enmity, this hostility between Satan and mankind now forever down in the, into the ages. And he goes on to say that the offspring of the woman, or the descendant of the woman, will bruise or strike the head of the serpent. And the serpent will bruise or strike his heel. This verse is known as the, the Proto-Euangelion. There's going to be a quiz on that later. So, The Proto-Euangelion. What that means is the first gospel. The first announcement of the good news. So if anything, remember that, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. And it's called the first gospel because this verse is the first veiled reference to what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. Look at the verse. What is God going to do through Jesus Christ? He's going to defeat Satan and the powers of sin and death. He, Jesus, will have his heel struck in the process But when it's all said and done, he, the Christ, bruised heel and all, will stand victorious over the crushed head of the serpent. It's a veiled reference to what he's going to do. He's telling them, look, one day there will be a man, one of your offspring, your descendants, who will come. He will have his heel bruised by the serpent, but in the process he will crush or bruise the serpent's head. In other words, the the serpent will, will be dealt a fatal blow. At the first announcement of the gospel. And through Christ as well, through this, this descendant of Eve, he'll also lift the curse that he pronounces in the following verses. Isn't it interesting that even before God pronounces the curse in verses 16 through 19, he actually tells them that he's going to send somebody who will overcome the power of the serpent? And who will lift the curse? Even before he he pronounces the curse, he pronounces that there will be a curse breaker. Now, 
Now, just take a second and put yourself in, in, in their shoes, in Adam and Eve's shoes. Imagine you're there in the garden with them. You've just disobeyed the sovereign creator of the universe, and you've plunged all of creation headlong into a, a spiral of, of misery and death. And you're standing there before the Lord God, and you're awaiting your verdict. And before he even turns to you to give you your verdict, he says that one day he's going to send one of your descendants to crush the head of the serpent and to undo everything that's happened. Imagine the despair, the unbearable burden of guilt and confusion and shame and fear they must have felt. And imagine the hope that must have risen up in their chest when they heard God utter the words of Genesis 3.15. When they heard God announce that one day one of their offspring would come and bruise the head of the serpent and undo everything that has happened. And imagine all the thoughts that came rushing into their head when they heard God say the words of Genesis 3.15. One of our descendants... Who? When, when will he be here? How, how will he do this? What exactly will this look like? How will he crush the head of the serpent? How will his heel be bruised? What, what, just think of all the thoughts that were going through their head when they heard that. But God doesn't give them any more details, does he? He, he merely leaves it at that. He says, I will send one of your descendants to crush the head of the serpent. Now imagine what it was like the first time Adam and Eve got pregnant with a child. And the first time they gave birth to a son. Do you, think, do you think it's going to be a boy? Is this going to be the one? Is this the one? Is this our descendant who will crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance from this curse? Imagine how they looked forward with such great hope. And imagine the disappointment every time they had a child. And he failed to be the promised descendant who would crush the serpent's head. Imagine Cain and Abel, their first two sons, when they proved to be just as sinful and just as murderous as their parents. We're not told anything about it, but I have to believe that Adam and Eve lived all 930 years of their lives with this great forward-looking hope in the promised descendant who would bring deliverance and salvation. Imagine all the generations of their descendants to whom they passed on this hope. Imagine them telling their kids and their grandkids and their great, 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 great grandkids. A lot of grandkids when you live 930 years, I imagine. Imagine them telling them, one, you live in a cursed creation now, but one day, one of our descendants, God will send him to undo it all. Imagine the Old Testament saints and the rest of the Old Testament looking forward to this coming Messiah who would undo the curse and crush the head of the serpent. Do you know that the entire Old Testament is a, is a story about how God is bringing this promised descendant, this Messiah, into the world? That it's all pointing forward to Christ and what he was going to come into the world and accomplish. And along the way, he reveals just little bits and details as they go in the story. 
Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and will bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 2, 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Think of the anticipation they felt for hundreds or even thousands of years before Christ came. Waiting. When is he going to come? Until one day, in the little town of Bethlehem, to a descendant of Eve named Mary, he's born. He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, even to the point of becoming obedient, to the point of being obedient to the death of, to dying on a cross. That's Philippians 2, 6 through 8. And it was on the cross where Christ, the descendant of Eve, born of a woman, had his heel bruised as he took the curse upon himself by becoming a curse for us. That's Galatians 3.13. And by becoming a curse for us, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's Colossians 2.14. And three days later, he rose again victorious, conquering the power of sin and death. And by doing this, by by taking the curse upon himself, and by canceling the record of death that stood against us, and by rising again victorious over the powers of sin and death, he crushed the serpent's head. And having crushed the serpent's head, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. That's Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And it's there he remains, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting until the time when he comes again to finish what he's begun and to make his enemies his footstool. That's what Hebrews ten thirteen says. And this is where we find ourselves in this story. We find ourselves living between the times on this earth. Between the times of Christ's first coming, 
When, when the serpent crusher came, took the curse upon himself, crushed the serpent's head by rising again. And his second coming, when he will come to claim absolute and total victory. When he will once and for all make Satan his footstool and lift the curse and redeem all things. You might be asking yourself, if Christ crushed the head of the serpent when he first came, why is there still so much evil in the world? Why does it seem like Satan still has so much power and so much sway? Why does it seem like the curse hasn't been lifted? I think the best answer to that is found in Hebrews 9.28. It says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, the first time Christ came, he came to deal with sin. To take the curse upon himself to, so as to break its power and crush the head of the serpent. To cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's what his first coming was about. And this verse tells us that at his second coming, he will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He fought the battle and won the victory at his first coming. And at his second coming, he will come to claim absolute and total victory. And when he does, he will effectively and permanently lift the curse and make all things new. In the first book of the Lord of the Rings, there's one point in the story when uh, Sam Gamgee asks Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the biblical answer to that question is, yes. Absolutely it will. One day, Christ will return. And he will lift the curse once and for all. And he will make all things new. And when he does, everything sad that is in this cursed world right now is going to come on true. Again, I don't know how you personally are feeling the weight of the curse today. Or how you in your own life felt the weight of the curse this past year. I don't know what sadness or, or pain you, you may be feeling or may have felt. I don't know what is currently grieving you or making you anxious. But the good news of the gospel is that for all who trust in Christ alone, everything sad is going to come untrue. Revelation 21.4 says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So what do we do as we still live in this story? As we await the, the completion and the resolution of this story? We fix our hope firmly on Christ above, seated at the right hand of the Father, far above every rule and power and authority. 
when it seems as if this cursed world is too much, when we feel like we're, when it feels like the things continue to spiral out of control, when it feels like darkness is closing in around us, when it feels like things can't get any worse, and it feels like the enemy has won, it's then that we must remind ourselves that God, from the very beginning, has promised to crush the head of the serpent and to lift the curse. It's then that we must remind ourselves that what God has promised, he has done through Christ at his first coming. That Christ, the serpent crusher, has come once to break the power of the curse and to crush the serpent's head. And it's in the midst of our darkness that we must remind ourselves that the victory has already been won. And even though the enemy still holds sway in this world, he is a defeated enemy destined for destruction. And we must remind ourselves that the day is coming when Christ, the conquering Son of God, will come again to once and for all lift the curse and make all things new. So what do we do? We fix our hope firmly on Christ above. As Rex read in our call to worship, we forget what lies behind and we press forward for that ultimate goal, resurrection, being united to Christ for we are citizens of heaven. Worship team, would you come forward as we close? Well, we're still in the Christmas season, and uh, one of the most beloved Christmas songs of all time actually isn't even a Christmas song. The song Joy to the World is actually written by Isaac Watts, not about Christ's first coming, but about his second coming. Which, if you listen to it now, it'll make sense when you, when you listen to it. But the, the third stanza of the song goes like this, and, and you're familiar with it. Because we all know this song. We sing it every year at Christmas. The third stanza goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Listen to this part. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. That's our hope. And when we sing that song at Christmas, we remind ourselves that Christ has come once to crush the head of the serpent. And he will come again. And when he comes, he will bring great joy to the world. For at his second coming will be when there are no more sins and sorrows. It's then that no more thorns will infest the ground. It's then that he will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And everywhere that the curse affected, everything that the curse touched will be lifted. And that's our hope as we live in this story between the times, waiting for that resolution, waiting for Christ to come and bring all things to a close.
Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that afflict us and harass us every day in this world. Father, for each one of us, I know that there are things in our lives right now or in this past year that have made us feel the weight of sin and death and the curse on us. And Father, we know that it's our own sin that has brought this on us, that these are the consequences for our rebellion against you. And Father, now we thank you for sending your son Jesus once to bear our sin, to take our curse upon himself and to cancel the record of debt that stood against us. And to rise again victorious over the powers of sin and death. So Father, help us now as we live in this cursed and fallen world to look back to the cross and to the resurrection of your son, Jesus, knowing that he has crushed the head of the serpent and defeated the enemy at that time. Help us to know that as much as it doesn't feel like it now in this world, our enemy is a defeated enemy. And Father, help us to look forward with great hope and great anticipation to the day when Christ will come again to finish what he's begun, to make all things new, to wipe away every tear from our eyes and to make his enemies his footstool. Lord, fill our hearts, fill our lives with this hope now. And help us by your spirit to just respond and praise this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name.